0: Welcome to Peacemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY Program and Veritas Collaborative. Peacemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. It is our tremendous honor to be joined today by one of our field's very top experts, Dr. Laura Hill. Dr. Hale is an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral health at the Ohio State University and assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. She is one of the original founders of the Academy for Eating Disorders and was director of the organization now known as NIDA from 1990 to 1994. She is also the founder of the Center for Balanced Living where she was president and CEO from 2000 to 2017. She is the recipient of the Muskingum University Distinguished Service Award and the NIDA 2011 Lori Irving Award for Excellence in Eating Disorders Prevention and Awareness. Dr. Hill was a 2012 TEDx speaker of a talk titled Eating Disorders from the Inside Out. She has provided eating disorder treatment spoken internationally and conducted eating disorder research over 40 years. Her primary focus now is a brain-based approach to eating disorder treatment, including temperament-based therapy with supports, or TBTS, which will be the topic of our conversation today. And selfishly, I'm so excited to have my dear friend, Laura, join us for this conversation. Welcome, Laura.
1: Oh, thank you for asking me, Jillian. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We're so excited to dive into this and we know that this is a huge topic and we're gonna start at the, uh, with some basics today. So let's start with just a, a basic introduction to this brain-based approach to eating disorder treatment. Can you give us just a general idea of what TBTS is and how and, and why it was developed?
1: Yes, TBTS in essence looks at the inside, the underlying causes of eating disorders that and has been established to augment other treatments. It would be like looking at a tree, seeing it from the trunk up and all the branches. And that is what treatment has um, developed over time. We've looked at CBT, DBT, family therapies. They all address the, the parts that we can see. But what we realizes that there are roots to those problems underlying causes to those problems and that those underlying causes have not been clearly understood until technology advanced in the early 2000s and once it advanced and started looking at the neurocircuits in the brain that were that are actually contributing to each of the eating disorders and in some ways contributing to the cause of the eating disorders we've begun to dive in and look at that. So what we have done through developing a temperament-based therapy with supports approach is that we are looking at the brain, realize in eating disorders what is not firing accurately and have begun to realize that that network is actually the network and the brain issues that contribute to one's traits. Now, when we think of a body trait, that may be how high you are, or how much you weigh. But when we look at temperament traits, we're looking at, are you impulsive? Are you introverted? Or do you tend to be hold back and hesitant? You, are you determined? And so the more we see how the brain genetically inherited those traits and sets up a structure to express those traits, we've begun to realize that those traits are fundamental in identifying and actually working with clients and their own set of traits so that we can help them uh, manage their traits over their lifetime. I wanna separate traits from symptoms. Symptoms are the behaviors, the thoughts, the emotions that we developed, whether it's depression, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, but traits are in ge- genetically endowed. You don't get to choose your traits. You just can try to make them better. And so you have them throughout your life. So it's your repertoire and our job as clinicians to help our clients identify their traits and use them on the productive side because every trait can be expressed destructively or productively. But in temperament-based therapy, we want to stress stress utilizing and working to express those traits productively in order to manage or even eliminate the symptoms. We can stop the symptoms, we can use the traits.
0: That is such a beautiful explanation. It it really helps me to imagine that that sort of roots of the tree is all of that neural circuitry that we can't see until our advanced brain research and and thinking ahead to what we'll be able to see in the future is even really exciting, but I love that image of the the roots of the tree that we're trying to really understand and work with instead of trying to just change something about the, the leaves of the tree or to change the trunk. We really want to help understand what the roots are. Can you tell us a little bit more about the brain research. And I know that brain research is a, is a big topic and it's there's a lot to that conversation, but maybe just tell us a little bit about the brain research that supports TBTS and how has that research challenged or expanded the field's understanding of eating disorders? Because I think there's a continuum of how people hear that information and try to deploy that information, try to understand it and think through it. So I love your perspective on how that brain research really influences TBTS and the development of where you're going with it.
1: Well, I would say the brain research is a cornerstone of TBTS. And the brain research has helped us identify what the traits are. It's helped us look at uh, what's going on. And your question and the timing of our discussion is really excellent in that uh, Dr. Walter Kay, probably the, uh, the world leader, uh, one of the world leaders in looking at the neurobiology of anorexia nervosa, is actually um, moving forward and developing the and honing in. At first, we saw all the areas of the brain that were functioning and how they were firing differently compared to those who don't have eating disorders. But we were looking at them all equally. And now we're beginning, Dr. K is realizing and looking at many of the aberrations of the brain response and networks are Founded on the ventral striatum. And that's kind of in the temporal area inside in the brain. And it's made up of of three different areas. But the bottom line of the ventral striatum is it's the network that addresses reward and pleasure and motivation. So, what we are seeing consistently and repeatedly in the brain studies is that those with anorexia, their ventral striatum is under firing, and maybe in some cases firing so little that they have no sense of pleasure. So why is that important, you may say? Well, if we're going to have an internal sense of what to do, when to do it, how to do it, it is totally based or it is grounded in the roots of the ventral striatum. And so whenever you're thinking, oh, I'm gonna watch this discussion with Laura and Jillian, your, your brain might go, oh, that's a good idea. And it literally just sends a little surge of dopamine through the ventral striatum. And then that moves up into a circuit to the thoughts and the thoughts will say, all right, I'm going to do that because I now know it's a good idea. And I'm going to check in and watch and listen to this discussion. But for those, if you don't have that surge, well, you may say, should I watch this? No response. Should I not watch this? No response. I don't know if it's a good idea or not a good idea. Now let's shift that to food. Should I eat this? No response of, of pleasure. No response of a reward, no response of that's a good idea. And so if the ventral striatum is under firing, the thoughts, the upper level that is waiting for that signal from the brain, from the ventral striatum, doesn't know what to do. Now, we have known for decades that those with anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating often don't know what to do, especially anorexia have difficulty trusting and knowing how to decide on things. And that's because we now realize it's so grounded in the ventral striatum. So then you say, well, if you've got areas that you're finding out that are under firing, can't you just go in and make them fire? Well, that's what st- research is looking at. They're actually looking at deep brain stimulation to get that uh, firing better. They're looking at optogenetics where a laser might go in, but we aren't there yet. We're not there where we can actually know which part of the network, which part of the circuit to to stimulate and which will bring about the best response. And so as a result, the brain is misfiring and under-firing, and that means the client needs to know that, just like you may say your eyesight is poor. Now, what we're going to do is give you some glasses to compensate. Well, we don't have ventral striatum glasses yet, but what we do have is Knowledge and awareness of that. So you're going to be blind to those reward signals. Therefore, you have to outthink them or bring in people you trust to be your glasses. And that may be your spouse, your support person, might be your roommate, the support person may be somebody that you talk to across the country. But the issue is you have to consciously seek others' input. To help you weigh out the pros and cons, because you're clinicians, you need to know that the pros and cons are nearly impossible for those with anorexia to sort out because they do not have the indicator to say if it's a good idea or the bad idea. So you, the clinician, you, the support people need to be the pros and cons to help the client then reason on their own. They can take it from there. You need to just provide the part of the picture that they can't see clearly or sense clearly. The other part is, and the good news to that is, once a person learns to um, start compensating and seeking that help, they can learn almost brain algorithms to figure out how to answer those questions as they go along. And some clients with anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating will actually rewire and fill in on their own, especially those in adolescence. The older the adult, the more they need to compensate externally over time. It's not impossible. We do it all the time. Uh, We do it for everything. The issue is now we have to do it for this.
0: That's so helpful in in, in understanding, I think, that concept of a a confusing sort of network that's hard to understand. It reminds me, uh, this is a terrible analogy, but it reminds me of trying to figure out how to fix my internet. Like why is my internet not working? And when I call Comcast, that is so unhelpful, right? Because I'm just asking this huge network that is also a little confused. And so really I can see this as I get a helper to help me navigate Comcast when I call and and have a problem or whoever my internet provider is. And that's gonna help me to feel more confident and successful in actually having an outcome that meets my needs. That's what I think of when I hear you talk.
1: You I think you've nailed it and said it better in everyday terms than I could have.
0: Oh, well, I don't know about that. But <laughs> <laughs> so I love the concept that at the core of this is really an understanding that that these temperament traits that are sort of part of how this wiring happens in our brains are are neither good nor bad. You said this, that they're 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 there and we can use them, you know to the dark or to the light is sometimes how I think about it. And so we know that TBTS isn't about changing the traits, but instead about asking about how their traits are expressed and can be worked with in different ways. Can you give us an example of maybe just pick a trait uh, and describe how that trait could range from productive to destructive?
1: You bet. I think one of the most difficult, well, first of all, all of us as clinicians are trained to look at traits from the pathological or destructive side. And little is addressed, maybe some through positive psychology, but little is addressed in looking at our traits from the productive side. Yet we live our everyday expressing ourselves with our productive traits as much, if not more, than our destructive traits. And if we are not looking at our whole profile, then we cannot utilize those traits in a way to help us shift the ones that are more destructive to become a little more productive. So let's take a productive trait that we've developed and will be publishing in our new book, a client- trait profile checklist and we've taken over 55 traits that any person could have of any diagnosis drawn from personality models and we've listed those and what we find is clients can so easily say oh yeah i've got that trait that one they that the number doesn't bother them when they see two and a half pages of traits. But then we say, okay, currently, how are those traits being expressed? And I look for, traits that when clients say I'm determined, I have a trait that's stubborn. I look for those two traits especially because they can be used so productively when you've got a client that is determined or stubborn to hold on to an issue and make and push it forward, then I know that we're they can use those traits their own inner traits as a motivator to actually help shift some traits that may be working against them, such as an impulsive trait. I've told clients over and over, I think the impulsive trait is one of the hardest ones to bend and at the same time brings about and reaps incredible benefits. I have a colleague who has an impulsive trait that she used to use to binge. She binged on alcohol. She binged on food. She binged on even over-exercising. She binged on so many various destructive things. And it wasn't any one of those things. It was because of the impulse. She just would jump into it and then it would become uncontrollable for her. But then she started Forcing that to uh, shift and started developing step by steps. Well, what would I would like to to impulsively do that I w- instead of if I wasn't binging or if I wasn't running into an exercise? And she began research. She would find a topic and just impulsively dive into it. And has become an amazing expert in her field. And she said, "I just I one issue then impulsively leads me to." To another and then I've got to devour that idea and and study it as much as I can. And she's an amazing professor and her students love her and she's learned to use her impulse tendency towards a very productive outcome. And so I'd like to also shift that, Jillian, to how many years and how many decades have we talked, have clients talked, we clinicians talked, and have we heard people say they'll talk about ED being eating disorders, ED, and their attempts to eliminate ED or face the reality that I can't imagine my life without ED. Well, the fact is that now we're looking at temperament we're realizing that the eating disorder is made up of a combination of traits and that that can be a temperament-based anorexia and a temperament-based bulimia and binge eating. And so the ed is made up of the destructive side of those traits. And our job is to not only recognize those powerful traits, such as impulsive or harm avoidant or perfectionistic or determined, and you take those traits And we help each client identify their temperament of traits and how they are currently expressing them and then identifying which ones are now being used productively. And we're going to start shifting ed not to get rid of ed because ed can't be eliminated when clients say i can't imagine my life without ed they were telling us the truth i can't imagine my life without my traits because it's who i am but if ed became instead of ed let's say ed became d d e we change it around to make d more productive and you have the power of that trait profile now being expressed. A quick example is a heart surgeon that I worked with who had acute anorexia. The hospital said you cannot continue your heart surgery if your illness cannot be overcome or in major steps to eliminate your anorexia. She hated the idea. She did not like working with people directly because she goes, I just have to see them when they're asleep. And I'm literally, I love the details of the heart. I love the structure of the, res- or of the, uh, the surgeries. And she said, so what do I have to do to get over this? So she hated eating, she would avoid eating, because she was so focused on what she had to do. So she worked out the formulas of when to eat, how to eat. She saw it very much for her, an um, algorithmic formula of what she needed to stay strong enough in order to do what she loves to do, determined to do. And she was so determined in being a surgeon and determined to not eat, she shifted that determination to say, "I will eat what I have to in order to be this surgeon." And she is at an amazing hospital, and no one knows she has this illness and these vulnerable traits because she constantly focuses them to be more productive.
0: That's a that's a fantastic story. I can I I appreciate a heart surgeon being very detail oriented. That seems like an excellent trait to channel into being a surgeon. So it it strikes me that that is part of what this, what this treatment perspective brings to the field. It allows providers to really help people partner with their traits and express their traits more productively and, and not have them sort of taken away by the eating disorder, that they don't have to, uh, it doesn't have to get turned over to the eating disorder. Instead, it can be focused for the good. Is that how you're imagining providers, at least in part, will sort of see this addition to their toolbox of interventions that they use with, with clients, that they can use this uh, temperament concept to augment what they're doing?
1: That's exactly what we're thinking. And that's exactly why it shouldn't be freestanding because clients or clinicians have for years looked at the evidence-based treatments of cognitive behavioral, which is helping to shape the branches and alter some of those branches to be more expansive. But at times it was, all right, we need to eliminate the impulsive. No, now we're saying, all right, that's part of your roots. So now we're going to use the impulsive trait to use it towards something better to shape your cognitive and behavioral goals. So it is, Absolutely, the two joining together, your treatment provider is now recognizing that you've got another whole level of your toolbox and a lower drawer that maybe you never opened and it's filled with traits. And we've actually created a toolbox for clinicians and clients that is that lower drawer so that they can draw upon the traits and actually then um, use those traits to help the client become more self-accepting in who they are and empower themselves to be all that they are and the best side of who they are.
0: I love that, that concept as, as a recovered person, that concept of, you know, these traits are great if they're used in a way that's helpful and they're really fuel for the eating disorder once the eating disorder gets a hold of them and shakes them around and puts them to work, that it's really putting them to work for something else. So I I love that as somebody who's had an eating disorder myself. Let's talk a little bit about the supports element of this. So supports are a core piece of TBTS, the supports. So let's talk more about the role of support people in this model and, and why do they matter?
1: I'll give a story about my father. Uh, My father was a builder and he built huge steel buildings, he built houses, he built furniture, he built many different things. And at one, one summer, a camp director asked if he would be willing, with all his carpentry skills, to build a cabin uh, that was going to be placed in a unique area of the camp. And my father was thrilled to take on that project and literally started thinking ahead of which tools he needed to take, what supplies he needed, the wood, the roofing, and started lining up his equipment and gathered some of his men to work with him. And they all came in on this one day during the summer. And when the camp director met them, he looked at them and in shock and he said, Oh my gosh, I didn't tell you something important. And that is where we want the cabin, there are no roads into the cabin, you're not going to be able to get the forklift or any of these things in. And dad got out of the truck and he said, Okay, let's think this through. Well, we'll just have to find we'll just have to do it manually. So there were lots of campers at the camp that week, and every camper started literally picking up the wood, carrying X number of boards through the trails to where the campsite back and forth. All the tools were brought in, carried by one or two campers at a time, and the men. And so every tool, all the nails, all the wood, everything thing that had to be used to build the, the cabin were literally walked through the trails to get there. And then since they didn't have the larger equipment, dad showed all the campers how to start making a wall. He helped them learn how to cut off certain areas, how to bring the wall together, put ropes on it and start pulling the wall up and then bringing the joints together and starting to lean it against the next wall. Within two weeks, weeks the the shell of the cabin was made and the roof was on, all done manually. Now, what we have done and begun to realize through our technology of fMRIs and all of the understanding of the brain is we're realizing that some of the areas are so deep into the brain that need addressed, we do not have magnetic stimulation does not work with anorexia because the site is too deep within the brain. So we do not have the equipment yet to go into the brain, as I'd mentioned earlier, so we need to do it manually. Now, if I can't see manually, I've got to have glasses. So who are the glasses? The glasses are the supports. Now, I think clinicians have put it on ourselves for too long that we are the primary supports, that we must be that maybe only support. And the fact is we're setting our clients up for failure if they're leaning solely on one wall. And so the issue is we need to work with adults of all ages just like we've always worked with adolescents to include support people. Now the support people could be a person that I know through Zoom um, across the country because of technology of IT today, so we can augment with our wonderful IT technology to help with support. We can zoom. We can zoom in. We can have FaceTime while I'm eating or while I'm walking, so I'm not over uh, jogging, and then my friend is jogging with me in her place. Or the support could be the parents or the spouse, but. Over and over, the adult clients will say, I want to do it myself. I have no supports. What we're finding is there's always a support somewhere, even if it has been burned out for a while. But the fact is, that we can't do the fundamental changes without the help of the supports. And invariably, everybody realizes, begins to identify, maybe feel resistant to including their good friend. They don't want to lose their friendship over this. The friend is usually thrilled to be a part. And especially because we give the friend an ability to know what to do and what not to do while the client is orchestrating that. The client leads, we give them the structure to set up how they want their support to help them. So it becomes a working opportunity while to do for the supports to do manually with the client what we cannot do technically yet.
0: That's a, a beautiful sort of way to imagine that. I it, I hear that a lot, right? The client who says, like, no, no, I want to do this by myself, which has gotta be a trait of perseverance and determination, right? And so I love what you're saying around that's that's great. You get to orchestrate. Your supports, you get to orchestrate this building site. So it's so, you know, I've told my clients for years, but now I have so much better language to use with them that I've said, Great, I'm so glad you want to do it yourself because nobody else can do it for you and make it work. We need your investment and your energy. And now we can give them the here's what you get to orchestrate for yourself the way you want it, the way that works for you. And you still get to manage that. That's wonderful. How do you see? Clinicians uh, using TBTS to support or complement other therapies, I think one of the most sort of one of the hot topics in eating disorders is, you know, all of this amazing neurobiology research and clinicians who might think like, wow, that is like way beyond my level of comprehension. I I just get into the brain research and I feel like I'm, you know, calling my internet company. I just can't do it. Uh And so... Uh, I can imagine this is a uh, more applicable version of what the brain science is telling us that's much more
1: accessible.
0: Is that how you're imagining it? Clinicians will use it?
1: Um, we're, we're hoping so. We're in press. Uh, Cambridge Press is literally in the process of publishing a new book called Temperament-Based Therapy with Support. It is due to be out this coming winter and clinicians, an overview overall view of what temperament is, as I described earlier, and how it is the roots and why it is necessary for clinicians who treat eating disorders to understand what those roots look like. And we actually, through Christina Waringa and Stephanie Peck who are the co-authors with me in the book, Christina is a neuropsychologist. So, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. She has taken the neuroscience and chewed it up for us, so to speak, and gives the clinician the bottom lines of what could be said. Because what we have found while we developed this treatment over a 10 year process. Is that clients say, you have no idea how helpful it is to know what's going wrong in my brain or what isn't firing, and therefore why I have to do it this way. Because before I just knew I was supposed to eat this menu and I couldn't understand why it was so hard to do it, why I was so frustrated. At times it was painful mentally and physically. Now I'm understanding why, and therefore I can compensate myself as well as seek help and support from others when I'm vulnerable to not step up to the plate, so to speak. So what we're seeing is the opportunity for clinicians to add this in to the underlying aspects of their cognitive behavioral therapy, their dialectical behavioral therapy, because treating the branches may be fine in in short term. Uh, But what we're finding is eating disorders has a huge relapse anorexia bulimia and binge eating and we're th- we're our theory is that the relapse is due to that that we're not addressing the traits enough and that the traits are the parts of, are the roots that literally create those branches and therefore we've got to work with the correct traits not just a cognitive behavioral ad- identified from the outside this might be a good idea the good ideas come from which traits the client has so it helps shape the CBT to maybe be more successful over time. Because if the trait changes, the behavioral thoughts and feelings are going to change.
0: Absolutely. And my, my nutrition perspective brain also is thinking about if we if we nourish those roots, that will lead to a, a much more fruitful tree that's much able to lean towards the sun. So I, I love the, the complementary nature of it. So the book is coming out in the winter so excited. I know I'm going to be one of your first readers. So what happens then what's next for TBTS and your work in this ongoing chapter what happens next.
1: Um, We are actually in the process now, this summer, of forming TBTS Training Institute. And we are planning to have it begin when the book comes out in the winter. And so that clinicians can literally seek training, and probably there'll probably be three levels of training, is what we're planning at this point. The first level being all online, all virtual, but to learn and to practice the neurobiology and recognizing the underlying aspects of the illnesses from the neurobiological aspect and the temperament. And then the training will be how to integrate that into the food aspect of your treatment sessions and the, and the support aspects and how to bring in those supports and work, and so clinicians can then choose to have that either virtually or face-to-face in group trainings. And then the third level, if, if cl- uh, clinicians want to go to a third level of training, will be um, literally integrating it into their treatments and learning how to apply it throughout their treatments, their ongoing treatments. And those will be face-to-face, two- to three-day tra- trainings that will offer it at various sites. So we're excited to be able to provide the long-evolving information and now a way to help clinicians treat the, to the traits with their clients.
0: That is so exciting and exciting about the, the training institute and getting the word and opportunity out to clinicians to learn because we know that the the best design things only really work and help our clients if we can get it to the people that are out there trying to help them every day. So I, I love, love the idea. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wisdom. And it's, it's just so exciting to, to hear about what you're doing and to know how much of a, a journey and a process this has been to get to where you are and how much you've contributed so far. So we're really excited to, to see these chapters unfold.
1: Oh, thank you, Jillian. It is my pleasure. I just am thrilled that the Emily program has really looked at this right from the very beginning and looked at how this influences treatment, and that the Emily program and Veritas is dedicated, literally dedicated, to bringing these novel treatments to the fore. Uh, when they show validity and can help bring greater strength to our clients and their supports. So I commend Emily Program and Veritas for that.
0: Thank you. Well, we, we really value all of the, the work that has gone into it. So we're excited to, to do that together with you. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.